You asked a really good question about, well, what, what expertise did I bring to uh, UAP? And the expertise that I bring is radiation detection because dark matter detection is just one step away from just detection of any particles in general. Because when you're looking for a new particle, then you need to know what particles we already understand. You cannot claim to discover something new unless you've addressed all the existing possibilities. And the reason why that's connected to UAP is because of all of the claims of radiation. There's plenty of historical examples of claims of UAP producing radiation. And to me, that's really interesting because you can fake or hoax a video. It's really hard to fake a radiation signal. I'm not saying it's impossible, but like it's one thing to use CGI and fake people with a UFO picture, but radiation screams to me real phenomenon, very difficult to hoax. And again, that doesn't prove it's alien spacecraft, but it proves it's something weird and interesting. Koyas Institute is a pioneer in the field of AI-driven comparative and qualitative analysis and was established with the primary goal of uncovering the hidden value left behind in complex data sets. Through a combination of human expertise and cutting-edge technologies, Koyas has developed a range of services that cater to various industries. They are providing valuable insights that can help drive growth, formulate competitive strategy, and to identify key patterns in targeted demographics. Head to their site to learn more. Institute. That's C-O-E-U-S dot institute. Matt, thanks for joining me. Um, you are uh, an associate professor, and you primarily focus on um, detections of, of dark matter, uh, weakly interacting massive particles, uh, another thing. You also are interested, or at least intrigued to some degree, by unidentified anomalous phenomenon. Um, both of those, I would say, are uh, principles or, or theories that um, suffer from a, a lack of um, data that satisfies everyone, I'll say. Do you feel like there's a relation between the two as far as your interest in them, as far as uh, driving towards these conversations about uh, things on the, f the, the edge of our, our data sets, if you will, if not our understanding? Yeah, there is one major difference, though, which is uh, dark matter is accepted by most of the, the mainstream scientific community. That being said, there really is a good analogy, actually, because even though I just said dark matter is well accepted, that's really mostly within astrophysics, cosmology, particle physics. I've encountered scientists in other fields, including in other fields of physics, who will laugh about dark matter and say, oh, there's no such thing. So actually there is a, a remarkable amount of good analogies. So even though one is considered accepted, if you talk to the right people, you do get laughed at for, 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 for looking for dark matter as well. Interesting. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your uh, your academic and professional background. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, your studies and what you do now professionally? Sure. So um, my uh, I'll start with my alma mater, University of Chicago. Um, that's where I got everything. Actually, got my bachelor's, master's, and PhD there. So I stuck around for a long time. Then I went to uh, UC Davis in California for a few years, and after that, um, I was a fa I was and have been continue to this day to be a faculty member at the uh, university at Albany, SUNY. So that's the State University of of New York system. So that's sort of my background. I'm a professor of of physics at. Uh, at SUNY Albany, and I've been there for over nine years now. 
and my main effort, as we just said, is really the is the search for dark matter. It's my research effort. But as a professor, I do you know I teach courses. And I have to you know sit on committees. You know nobody likes that part. And there's research. So being a professor is kind of like a a full time job times three. So I often joke with people I work three hundred percent a time because each of those pillars of being a professor, research, teaching, service, all can take up all of your time. Is your teaching uh, focused on your research activities? That's a good question. It's not. It's um, that's a very common question that we uh, that professors often get. We teach whatever, whatever needs to be done. It can be physics, physics one for pre meds and those who hate physics. It can be a graduate course, anywhere in between. We do sometimes get to, but it's very rare actually. We may get to teach an elective advanced course in our in our field. So I did a few years ago create a class that focuses not just on dark matter because that's too specific for one semester, but sort of dark matter within the bigger picture of what's called astroparticle physics. But I haven't taught that course in years, especially with the um, given the pandemic and everything that electives weren't uh, as high of a priority for teaching as like the main the main focus of physics courses. Hmm. Astroparticle physics? Yeah, that's the big picture name for my sort of where dark matter fits and sort of the, the field that, that I work in. So where where is this? the state of the knowledge on on that topic right now so in terms of dark matter mm -hmm. i mean so we we the current state is that we have mountains mountains of evidence but they're observational evidence they're not what you would call direct evidence so we have hints really good hints and they're very very diverse we've seen things like the velocities of stars orbiting centers of galaxies that's the one of the biggest hints then there's another effect called gravitational lensing that's where mass can distort light you can then calculate the amount of mass that's doing the distortion so that's another clue that points towards there being dark matter more mass than we can see. And there's just a whole host of other pieces of evidence. We've even found galaxies in the recent years that are either entirely dark matter or no dark matter at all. And that seems to imply that it really is stuff. It's some kind of stuff, and you can have more of that stuff and less of that stuff. So the, the current state of the art is that we have all these hints, and they all seem to be pointing towards something there, but we still don't have a solid grasp. We can't, we, can't, we don't even have one theory that everyone can get behind for how much does one dark matter particle weigh we don't even know that it could be it could take on any value we don't know we have such a broad range of possibilities so even though we have all this evidence from astronomy and cosmology the current status is that we still haven't um in the from the particle physics angle actually seen anything conclusive yet hmm. so you guys you can detect um potential galaxies that are completely made of this, but those are still not considered direct observations? That's a really good point. Some say that's good enough. But for a particle physicist, it's not good enough because we still don't know what that is. We just know there's some stuff there, but that's not that doesn't count as direct detection. Let me give you an example. Let's say we didn't know protons existed, but we detected hydrogen gas which is effectively just protons and electrons. It's not the same thing because even if we have identified, you know, before we conclusively knew atoms existed, we already knew what hydrogen gas was. You know, chemists were able to, you know, use it. And yet we didn't know that it was made of these little tiny protons and electrons. It's the same thing with dark matter. So I think the, the, the right analogy is think of chemists 
finding elements in the periodic table centuries ago, but without knowing what's the fundamental structure. So we know dark matter's out there, but we don't know what the fundamental structure is. So that's why it's not good enough to say we've got this evidence from our galaxy, this other galaxy, and the universe as a whole. It's still not good enough for, for, most, for most scientists. We need to go deeper. Mm. A lot of cosmology, to my you know, amateur eye right now, seems to be uh, a linking of the small with the big, if you will. Uh, with the quantum world, with the larger cosmology. We have ER equals EPR, which is trying to combine uh, general relativity uh, quantum mechanics to some degree using black holes and entanglement. Um, and that is, you know, an example of quantum effects happening at a, at a macro scale and us taking that into consideration. Um, is, there, is there any line of thought around um, quantum effects or that same type of principle applying to dark matter or dark energy? Yes, absolutely. So, in fact... One of the things about my line of work is I'm always talking about how it links the small with the large, the microscopic with the macroscopic worlds on multiple scales. So even though we were, we were just talking about how dark matter is out there and we're talking about galaxies, but that's not what I do. I'm not an astronomer. I'm a particle physicist. So what I do is to try to build detectors to see dark matter at the quantum mechanical level, at the particle level. But that's directly impactful on our theories of cosmology and astrophysics. So there's a deep and intimate connection between dark matter out there, so to speak, in space versus detecting it in particle detectors. But there's another level of that too, which is the type of dark matter detection technologies I work on. They're designed to take something that's invisible, one atom being hit by a particle of dark matter and turning that into a macroscopic detectable flash of light that the instrument can then record. And so that's another link where we're taking the microscopic and taking it to the, for, taking it to the macroscopic realm. Is it microscopic or is it uh, at a level where the quantum effects are applicable? Oh, definitely. Uh, quantum effects are, are, are definitely applicable. It depends on the type of dark matter, actually. We're actually not sure whether dark matter is what you would call more particle-like or more wave-like. That's kind of a misnomer because in quantum mechanics, everything is a particle and a wave, right? So the thing is, we don't know, is dark matter really heavy? In which case, it acts more like a particle, like a billiard ball mm -hmm. on a pool table. Or is dark matter more wave-like? Does it act more like water or sound waves? Dark matter could be anywhere in between those possibilities or something else. And so the type of dark matter I focus on, different researchers have their different specialties. I'm looking for particle-like dark matter where the quantum effects are less important. What I mean by that is, is in our detection technologies, it's almost like two microscopic billiard balls hitting each other. So we can, for the most part, not entirely, of course, because we're still talking about atoms, we can, for the most part, ignore quantum effects and pretend it's a classical system as if it was a pool table. But not all dark matter researchers do that. Some consider the possibility that dark matter acts more like waves, in which case it would have more quantum weirdness. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So how do you detect or potentially detect these objects? You said you are directly related to that. So how, what does that process look like and how do you go about that right now or how are you trying to do that? So I work on an experiment called LZ, which is uh, short for Lux Zeppelin. It's a merger of two earlier experiments, Lux and Zeppelin. And the technology it uses is not the only one. This is only one example of a broad class of detectors called direct detectors. What direct detectors do is they'll have a giant tank of liquid or a solid or maybe a gas, a giant target, 
And the, t- the idea is you look for dark matter to hit one of the nuclei inside of one of the atoms in your experiment. So this is a very broad class of experiments and different people around the world use different substances. So LZ uses liquid xenon. The reason why we use liquid xenon, it has several advantages. It's dense when it's liquefied, when it's cold, and so it can stop non-dark matter, other kinds of, you know, radiation, just other particles we know and love, just naturally occurring radiation. But the general idea for all direct detection experiments is dark matter comes in, hits one of the nuclei inside one of the atoms in your target, and then when that atom is moving, it has got extra energy now, it produces some kind of signal you can detect. Maybe it's um, electric, maybe it's charge, maybe it's uh, light, maybe it's heat. And so you're looking for a signal. So the different technologies that are used rely on some sort of macroscopic measurable signal from that microscopic interaction of that first uh, atomic or nuclear recoil. So in the case of the technology I spend most of my time on liquid xenon, we have two signals, light and charge. We combine those signals because that gives us like position and energy reconstruction and information. Okay. Is there direct evidence of... um this dark matter interacting with um, the nucleus of atoms, or is that uh, an assumption still? That's an assumption, and it's one that's required in order to to move forward. So there's absolutely no proof or evidence that it's even possible. So all we know is that dark matter interacts gravitationally. So in all the direct detection experiments, the assumption is always that there's something extra. There's some sort of weak, very rare interaction other than gravity that allows the dark matter, in a sense, to talk to a nucleus and, 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 and kick it and give it some measurable energy. That is absolutely an assumption. It could be wrong, but without that assumption, then we wouldn't even, then there's no point in even trying to detect dark matter. But the reason why it's a decent assumption is because we have a lot of models, like uh, supersymmetry, uh, Kaluza-Klein extra dimensions, and all these other ideas out there that all predict that there could be a particle that might explain dark matter. Some sort of new particle is predicted by all these these different theories. And in almost every case, they will have interactions other than gravitational. And so that's why that's how we justify that assumption. But it is still an assumption. It could be dark matter only interacts gravitationally, in which case we may never be able to detect it directly. And the astronomical evidence may be all that humanity ever gets for it which would be very sad because it would be very hard to, to figure out what it is if it only interacts through gravity. Interesting. So I don't want to jump into UAP quite yet, yeah. but I, there's, I feel like there's a lot of analogies uh, that we could talk about. Um, maybe just for a quick aside before we perhaps get back to physics in a moment, um, you were doing work on detecting UAP, mm-hmm. identified anomalous phenomenon. Um, is that the definition you use or... Oh, everyone uses a different one. No, we use, what is it, um, unidentified aerial phenomena or aerospace. Sometimes aerial becomes aerospace. And sometimes, yeah, unidentified becomes unclassified, right? We, we keep changing what the letters mean. We keep changing what the letters are even. So let's talk about how you got involved in that topic. When did sure. that begin? So that began... Not not too long ago, actually, maybe about five years ago, something like that. You know, time warps during the pandemic. It's hard to remember, but it was before, it was before the pandemic started, and it was all um, actually 
it was primarily due to my colleague, Professor Kevin Knuth, who's also at the University of Albany, who's, he's been big on this for years. And he's the one that roped me in and sort of convinced me as an, as an adult. But the seeds were sort of there because as a child, I watched, like, for example, when I was a kid, you know, this totally scared the crap out of me. I watched uh, the Rendlesham Forest episode, for example, of Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack and his glowing red orb and stuff. So I, I would watch the the, the UFO stuff um, mm -hmm. as a kid. But probably most important, I watched, um, I watched Star Trek The Next Generation, and so that really... Um, opened my mind to to possibilities, but more from like a science fiction perspective versus a fantasy perspective, where there's a subtle difference. You know, sort of like the the hard science fiction nuts and bolts, and so that's sort of those are sort of like the the threads and 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 the motivations. It was really though the watershed moment. A lot of people will probably say the same answer, but it is true. Was the um, was the New York Times article? Um, of a few years ago about the, you know, about ATIP and the, and, and, you know, by uh, Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal. It was really that kind of changed the game for not just me, of course, for so many people. It's like, wow, this is the New York Times. It's not, you know, a supermarket tabloid from the checkout aisle. And that really changed the conversation and it made it more okay to, uh, to study uh, UAP as a scientist. How were you approached, you know, what was the, how were you convinced, if you will? What was the logic that was used to convince you? And what were you convinced of? That there's something there that's worth looking into? Yeah, so that's a good question. So what I was, what my colleague um, Kevin was able to convince me of was anomalous velocities in accelerations, in particularly in the uh, Nimitz encounter, but in other encounters, other famous cases as well, like the um, Japanese airline incident, things like that. And, and so he was able to, by looking at actual numbers and data, be able to pr show evidence that he could show me, he could show other scientific colleagues of there being anomalous velocities and accelerations. And that's what really um, began to convince me that there was something worth uh, worth looking at. It does, still doesn't prove it's alien spacecraft because you could have some naturally occurring phenomenon, you know, something in atmospheric physics. But what it does to me prove is that there's something worth studying and not ignoring there that you should, that's worth diving into. So it's really looking at numbers of velocities and accelerations from reliable sources, you know, from like the, the U.S. Navy videos are what really um, convinced me. But like I said, the seed was was already planted from, from childhood, from things like Star Trek and Unsolved Mysteries and stuff. So I probably didn't need that much convincing. <laughs> <laughs> I was a I was a next generation fan myself. Uh, in fact, there's a I think a video of my one year old daughter screaming at the the, <laughs> the intro to Star Trek and excitement. I a little bit. Got a video of my daughter <laughs> Ivy doing the same thing. It used to be that when she was upset, she would be calmed by the Star Trek The Next Generation theme song mm -hmm. and credits playing. <laughs> so I've yeah. heard that you've also tried to bring in some of that pop culture, whether it be Star Trek or, or other things, into some of your um, communication style when it comes to physics. That's right. Uh, can you give an example of that? Sure. So when I would teach Physics 3, which was modern physics, that's like a bit of relativity and a bit of quantum as well, mixed mixed together, and, and some thermodynamics. In that class, which I've taught four or five times now, in that particular class, I would, um, I often based a lot, the home, all, almost all the homework questions were either Star Trek or Star Wars, 
or Doctor Who or something else. Like I had a question about um, Rao, like the the red star that of Superman's, you know, home, oh, home star system. <laughs> like just, could, I would throw in questions. I would I would write almost all of my homework questions like that. So I think that's a good example. And I'll do analogies from from uh, Star Trek and maybe you know skeptical scientists will get uh, uber skeptical scientists get get may get angry at me for doing that but I think there's no harm in using something even that's fictional to get people interested and excited in doing real science it does uh, science fiction seems to drive our motivation towards certain ends to some yeah. degree whether they're feasible or not it doesn't really matter if we want it to be and we believe in it we are going to push in that direction and we're going to get a little bit closer to some degree mm-hmm. um, that's very true. So you got involved in UAP uh, through mm-hmm. a colleague. What, what does that look like? How are you involved in it, at least at that point? Were you asked to provide some specialty based off of your perhaps, um, I don't want to call it experimental background. Is mm-hmm. that correct? That is say? correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, m- when many people hear that I'm a physicist, they immediately say, oh, so you're a theoretical physicist. And I say, no, I'm an experimental physicist. And then I get blank stares, you know, like a cocktail party. Those are very different things. So an experimental physicist is more like an engineer, whereas a theoretical physicist is more like a mathematician. That's a very imperfect analogy because they're their own things, of course. But basically, I build things with my hands. I don't just, I, I will do things on computer, computer simulation, things like that. So I also use a pencil and calculator like a theoretical physicist, but I am but I focus on building things. And so actually you asked a really good question about, well, what, what expertise did I bring to uh, UAP when my uh, colleague, Professor Knuth, invited me to, to join him in, in that grand adventure. And the expertise that I bring is radiation detection because dark matter detection is just one step away from just detection of any particles in general. And the reason is, is because when you're looking for a new particle like dark matter, and this applies even to you know particle colliders like the LHC in Switzerland, you need to know what particles that already we already understand, what do they look like? You cannot claim to discover something new unless you've addressed all the existing possibilities. And the reason why that's connected to UAP is because of all of the claims of radiation. There's the famous, you know, Cash Landrum case in Texas. That's just one example of many. There's another example in France, one in Canada. There's plenty of historical examples of claims of UAP producing radiation. And to me, that's really interesting because you can fake or hoax a video. It's really hard to fake a radiation signal. I'm not saying it's impossible, but like it's one thing to use CGI and fake people with a UFO picture, but radiation screams to me real phenomenon, very difficult to hoax. And again, that doesn't prove it's alien spacecraft, but it proves it's something weird and interesting. And so that's the angle where I come in is my expertise is in particle detection. That's very interesting. There's a bit of analogy there between looking for a new particle that you've hypothesized about. Uh, you may you have to uh, account for all the particles and, and things that you're expecting to see and then work your way backwards to see what anomalous data might exist uh, exactly. once you removed all that. It's a very similar problem to UAP. That's right. So, but the the fortunate thing when we're looking for dark matter is we have a short list of possibilities, all the different particles that we've already discovered and we know how they behave. It's always very challenging when you're doing UAP research because you can prove something's not a bird, a plane, a drone, a helicopter. 
And but what about that one thing you forgot on your list? Ah, it's a dragonfly or something. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's really hard when the list of possibilities is so long. So it's a good analogy. But with UAP, you have such a long list because you've got animals, you've got human-made craft of all different varieties that it makes it just exacerbates the problem because you have to show it's when you want to claim something is an anomaly or anomalous, you have to say it's not this, 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 this. And the, the list is even longer than when we say something is dark matter. Ah, it's not an alpha, beta, neutron, gamma, muon. Not that many things, not that many other kinds of, uh, there are not that many kinds of particles. I mean, there are plenty of subatomic particles, but not that many that would interact on a regular basis with a, the, mm -hmm. a detector of the kinds I use. So too many potential variables compared to particle physics. Yeah. Um, the search space is is much higher as well. Um, so, how do you look for radiation then? And when we say radiation, I think the layman would think of your normal uranium type radiation that can physically harm a person. Is that what you're referring to? Um, yes and no. So, but first, let me see. Your question is about for the UAP research. Is that right? Correct. Okay. So yeah, in that case, we're not looking for. Um, a new particle, because then we would be doing two things at the same time. So we're look what we're looking for in that case are those natural kinds of radiation you, you mentioned, but something extra. Instead of an extra new particle, the goal with radiation detection for UAP research is a strange blip that is statistically anomalous above natural background. So you, you're, you're talking about uranium and those things. Now, most radiation, most people don't know, this is actually not very harmful. Right now in this room, we are constantly bombarded, not just by cosmic radiation, but even your body is radioactive. In fact, the dark matter detectors I work on are less radioactive than this table or you and me. And that's because in order to find something new, you got to get the background, you know, radiation down. So th when I s talk about the, the, the uh, radiation, both for what we need to eliminate from, from, from our dark matter research and also what are we looking for in terms of UAP research, we're looking for something extra above normal background radiation. So the most common types of radiation are alpha, beta, gamma, neutron, muon. Alphas and betas, they don't go very far. They'll go like a few millimeters, even in air. So that's kind of useless if you're trying to remote detect something that's super radioactive, far, far, my, many miles away in the air. So that's really not the focus. So the focus is really other things, mostly neutrons and gamma rays. So, um, it, which made the incredible Hulk, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> but those are the kinds of particles that can travel long distances. And the idea is, again, not to see them, period, because that's not anomalous, because they're bombarding us constantly from the sun, from, this, from other sources in our galaxy, from distant, distant stars, supernovas. So the goal there with, with UAP, and it's a very challenging one, is to see a blip above normal background. And the reason why that's challenging, you have to be so careful, because if you've got a million data points, for example, don't be surprised if you've got a one in a million miracle in it, and you do have a blip. And so the idea is, is to take something traditional for UAPs, you know, cameras, and have a blip in the radiation detection at the same time, you've got a weird image on FLIR or on an ordinary camera. So really the focus of the UAP research I've been doing um, with UAPX is to do what's called in science a coincidence measurement. It doesn't mean coincidence like is used in standard parlance, like that's a coincidence. No, it means like 
something's not a coincidence. It's too much of a, it's too much, it's, it's too much of a statistical anomaly to be a coincidence. So what we're looking for are multiple sensors, all saying something weird is happening within a very, very small time frame. Mm -hmm. So what other sensors is UAPX using? And now, you know, broaden it out a little bit to what the organization as a goal is trying to accomplish. Yeah, so the 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 goal of 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 UAPX is to figure out very you know, very simply what UAP are and that's a very ambitious goal, especially because we might not be thinking of one thing, right? It might be phenomena plural instead of a phenomenon. But really want to figure out what is going on? Are we talking natural phenomenon? Are we talking advanced uh, a craft? Figure it out and get data. Get data of our own that is not classified, that doesn't belong to the U.S. government or any government, but is open. Data that we can then publish in scientific publications, which then, the, the, which then not just other scientists, but literally anyone can read. And we want to do that with sensors. So you asked also what sensors. So that's our goal. And the sensors we use, we, we use to reach that goal are cameras of different types, visible light, infrared, made very famous, of course, by the GoFast and Gimbal videos, but more than just cameras, but the radiation detection I had discussed. So you take the cameras, take radiation detection, and we want to keep adding to that. We want to add magnetometers. There have been so many claims going back decades of strange electromagnetic effects due to UAP. That's testable. That's testable. Those people, we laugh at those stories and people think they're crazy, but those are testable hypotheses. We can, we can do, add tri-field meters, magnetometers. So we started with cameras, both visible and infrared, and we also had radiation detection. We want to expand to electromagnetic field detection and, and, and move on from there. We also want to do ultraviolet. Because what if there are objects that are similarly to what happened with infrared? You know, sometimes there are strange objects that are visible in infrared and not visible or vice versa. What about ultraviolet? You know, the other end of the spectrum. So we want to add more to the spectrum of light that humans can't see, but our machines can. But also want to add the complementary sensors that have nothing to do with, with light that are things like, um, or are connected but aren't, you know, visible light or close to it. Things like electromagnetic field detection and, um, and the, and the, and the, uh, uh, the uh, the other sensors like uh, accelerometers as well for like whether is there some you know strange vibration sound we want to add sound sensors as well and so many groups are doing this now UAPX was one of the first but now it's really taking off really taking off you got um, Avi Loeb and Galileo Project you got Sky 360 you got so many groups now and that's that's great because now more and more scientists and engineers are taking it seriously and trying to get some hard data on on the these things. Yeah, it is, it is a good thing to see multiple efforts. Um, would you say there's some competition perhaps with Galileo, maybe friendly, or are there perhaps different methods that uh, UAPX is uh, taking than Galileo, if you can talk about it? So, so yeah, there, there are, we have um, extremely similar approaches. And I, I think that it's, it's very, very important to, to, to maintain friendliness and collaboration. Absolutely, there is some sense of, of competition, but I think it's very important to try to reduce that because I think that whatever UAPR, whether it's ET or even if it's some sort of strange atmospheric phenomenon, 
there's so much to be gained potentially by what humanity can learn that I think it's very important to not be competitive and petty. And I think that might be a detriment. So I, I think that, um, but at this, so at, it's very important to have multiple groups. I still think there are too many. We should start collaborating more and merging. I think because last time I tried to count like, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 groups. I tried to list all the acronyms, impossible. I do think more people need to merge, but I don't think there should just be one effort because that's dangerous. Because if one if one group claims some amazing discovery, you, you want some healthy competition. You want another group to be jealous and then say, try to disprove them. That's good mm -hmm. because that'll prevent Prevent false positives, false discoveries. Exactly. As soon yeah. as there's something discovered, the the next step is someone else to independently verify. Exactly. It. So having someone with somewhat similar tools and ready to go would be a complete part of that puzzle to make that that yeah. scientific process complete. Yeah, absolutely. But the main difference is resources. Also, Galileo Project very very rich. We're mm -hmm. trying on on new apex to get more more resources. Mm -hmm. But I think what we we want to have complementary measurements, not duplicate the exact same cameras, exact same sensors. I think that's crucial because then once we it's not it says things are only only trade secrets temporarily because if these groups are all scientific and they publish papers, you know, Galileo Project has published several papers, we're working on our first results paper, then you can see what the other person did and see, ah, that was a bad idea, that didn't work, hey, that was a good idea, let's steal that, mm -hmm. which is a good thing. You want scientific groups to look at each other even if they're competing and say, you know what, that's a good idea, we need to do that, or that's a bad idea, let's not repeat the same mistake they did, and then we have this cross-fertilization of good ideas. Mm. So where where is UAPX in this process? Where are, where are you guys? What's your status right now? So right now we're still analyzing the data from our first expedition, even though that was a long time ago. Well, that let's, was talk, let's talk about that. Yeah, let's yeah. Do, well, let's do a little back just if you can, just so if people aren't familiar, just the thirty sure. second background on that. So on um, uh, UAPX, we had uh, on our uh, organization, which as I explained earlier, we have our goal of you know, checking out, well, what UAP are. We, we had an expedition where we went to a, a supposed UAP hotspot, more importantly, the site of the 2004 uh, Nimitz encounter, and that was um, off the coast of California uh, on and near Catalina Island. So we, our expedition was funded by uh, Carolyn Corey and was part of a documentary movie called A Tear in the Sky. And in that movie, we had um, a lot of sensors deployed on a roof in Laguna Beach, California, and then sensors on Catalina Island. And we found some potentially interesting things. But the thing is, the data analysis is taking a long time because we are a very small group and an all-volunteer effort. So we want to publish our results perhaps more than one publication dedicated to different aspects of our work, like our instrumentation versus any potentially anomalous results. And so right now we're in the process of trying to finish writing a, a first scientific paper, but it isn't just going to be about instrumentation because we also have results. Maybe they'll all be null results where we didn't find anything interesting, but we might have found some interesting things. But we need to be extremely careful. Anything we claim is weird or interesting, we got to, again, go through our giant list. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Is it a drone? Is it a helicopter, etc.? That takes a lot of time, especially when you have several hundred hours of videos of mostly clouds rolling over the channel. That's a very difficult problem. 
even with AI, even with image processing, that's a very hard problem. So that's why even though it's been almost two years, we still, we're not ready, but we're getting close to publishing hopefully our first, our first paper on our findings. Interesting. It's fine. Answer is no. But is there any anything uh, you can talk about as far as um, your findings or, um, well, I guess you already did. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to push you a little bit, but I don't want to. Uh, oh no, yeah, sure. To. No, we can. <laughs> I can. I can talk about our most interesting. Our, our, I can try to. I can focus on our number one most interesting event. It's been covered publicly. You can go on YouTube and look at our SCU talk. That's a scientific coalition for UAP studies, or the Limina conference. And this is also an important part of the scientific process, especially on a controversial topic like this. So many people disagree and say we should publish. We should publish a paper first before we talk about anything. But there's two reasons why we didn't. Number one is we do have an incredible spirit of openness. We haven't shared all our data, not because we don't want to because it's many terabytes of data so it's really really hard but we want to share with the world what we think our findings are another important reason why we want to talk about it even before we've published a scientific paper is then we get criticism that's great because then get the early criticism and still later and then we get we add to our list of things it could be because someone will watch our talk and say oh that's a flock of seagulls or oh that's a this that's a that's that's good we can test that idea we don't like on uapx we don't like truth by proclamation if someone's got an idea for what we saw we're going to test it we're going to try to replicate the that situation kind of like uh, mick west is famous for doing in his garage we're going to do that not in garage but in my lab mm -hmm. um and we're going to replicate all the ideas we haven't finished doing that and so that's why we want to before we we publish we want to test but i can tell you about our number one most interesting potential anomaly which was a um there was a dark spot we saw in one of our uh, in one of our cameras, uh, and and this dark spot is there on several videos. Sometimes it has dots in it. Sometimes it doesn't have dots in it, and we don't know what it is. So we're testing things like could it be a fly on the camera lens? Could it be an artifact in the camera? But all the tests we performed so far. None of the mundane explanations seem to fit. So I know it sounds boring when I say it that way, a dark spot in a camera. In the movie, um, it's called a wormhole or wormhole-like anomaly. But the thing is, we have to be very careful of these, um, these really... Um, really kind of crazy explanations where we don't have the scientific evidence for. Believe me, I would like nothing more than for the black, the hole in the clouds or dark spot in the camera that we saw to be a wormhole. But that's a very high bar of evidence. No one's seen a wormhole before. We don't even know how one would behave like mathematically, how that would translate into the real world. And so we ca I, we cannot call it a wormhole, even though that makes it sound more exciting, but it's a it's a dark spot in our camera. And we're trying to determine, is it real? Is it a, a, a hole in the clouds that the camera saw in our, on our expedition? or is it is it glitch in the camera? Everything we've 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 looked at so far seems to imply, it's some. It's a real hole in the clouds, and not a not a glitch in the camera or nearby. But we need to be very careful and test all the different possibilities. But really, that's our number one most exciting um, uh, uh, event that we're continuing to study, and that's why the um, 
So the movie is called A Tear in the Sky. Actually, it was named before that, actually. So, <laughs> so I think um, uh, uh, Carolyn could claim to have been, I don't know, fitting. psychic and <laughs> like so saw, you know, a remote view of the future or, or, or whatever, because it was named before we, before we uh, observed that. Mm -hmm. But that really is our most exciting thing. Mm -hmm. We saw some other things, but as explained in some of my other already, um, my and Professor Kevin Knuth's YouTube presentations, that we were able to explain a lot of the other anomalies as, as camera noise or uh, one example was the International Space Station. And I think that's really important because if you don't look at your own data critically someone else will do it for you and then make fun of you right afterwards so we are we try to be very uh very very self-skeptical and critical of our data we don't claim something is weird unless we've tested multiple mundane hypotheses and found them and, and found them lacking is uapx in a position to draw firm conclusions on their data? Is that what your goal is? Or is it really more to observe what's out there and report on the data without really looking into uh, some of the more subjective and, and second tier analysis, such as origin, things of that nature? Because one of the problems I always hear in this conversation uh, is people immediately jump to conclusions as they're considering the data immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, and that drives them either into or away from the topic to some degree. Yes, uh, that's a great question. So yeah, we want to stay away from jumping to conclusions. That doesn't mean we never want a conclusion. We're, we're in it for the long game, the long haul. Maybe someday, you know, we'll get a high, re or, or, or Galileo Project or somebody else, we'll get a high resolution photograph of, you know, I don't know, flying saucer, an alien waving from the window. So it is always, it's the goal to eventually want to get solid conclusions. So we, so on UAPX, we do want solid conclusions, but not, not, not yet, and probably not for a while. So initially, the idea is, you know, take some data, figure out what things are not right go through the mundane hypotheses which is it's which is a challenge because you never know if there was that one mundane hypothesis you forgot to consider that explains your data as boring and ordinary so it's a very very difficult process and it's a combination sort of of deductive and inductive reasoning of different kinds of reasoning mm -hmm. and and so the the goal is solid conclusions like you know, it's an advanced craft, or it's this natural phenomenon, but not right away. Not while we're still getting our sea legs, mm -hmm. you know, so to speak. You know, I could use Navy analogies <laughs> since, you know, Gary Varese is the former Navy guy and president of, of UAPX. But basically, we want to first feel things out, get to know our, our instruments, our sensors, make sure they're well calibrated, not jump to any conclusions. And that temptation is already, was, is there. We already started doing that a little bit with, you know, we, we, we called our dark spot a wormhole-like anomaly, which was a compromise between calling it a wormhole <laughs> versus calling it, you know, a boring name like it's a dark dark spot in the camera, hole in the clouds. So the temptation is always there. So it's a constant battle because scientists, we're just, we're human beings. We're not Vulcans like on Star Trek or Lieutenant Commander Data initially without emotions. We have emotions too. I have emotions. I sometimes am very tempted to say, oh my gosh, let's you know go find evidence of alien spacecraft, but that's gonna be really hard. And so we want to balance that excitement with some hard-nosed um, skepticism and, and data without becoming over-skeptical and dumping 
uh, anomalies and dumping data we don't like. If something's weird, we're going to say, oh, this is weird because we tested and it's not this, 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 this. But we're not going to write, because we reject all those things, therefore it's an alien spacecraft. We're not going to be able to do that. Maybe someday, but we're very far from being able to do that yet. We're just getting started. I've heard similar sentiment from the Galileo project mm -hmm. to a certain degree. And, you know, just, you know, set your expectations. That's where this conversation is now. So uh, none of the projects here, they're standing up. Uh, we're really calibrating and getting to better understand what's in front of us. We're not necessarily expecting to grab a, a snapshot in the you know next six months. This is a long process. Exactly. We consider ourselves extremely lucky on UAPX that we got at least one potentially interesting event. Again, you know, I don't want to call it a wormhole, but that would be amazing if that's what it was. I don't think it, mm -hmm. it is. We don't have evidence yet that, that that's what it is. That's a high bar. But at least we have one anomaly that is still refusing explanation. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. Like I said, most of the other so-called anomalies we saw turn out to have explanations. But we consider ourselves extremely lucky because how can you just go out for a week you know, to the location where there were some Tic Tacs in 2004. That was 2004. What are they, what are they hanging around, right? It seems so unlikely that we would catch something. So we consider ourselves supremely lucky because we, we, we especially the scientists on UAPX, me and, uh, um, and, and Kevin, who was in the, the movie with me, were like, what if we find nothing? Which is great for science because calibrating the instruments, not so great for a movie. And so we, we consider ourselves extremely lucky that we saw something, we're, not only that makes the, the film more exciting than um, A Tear in the Sky, but is also worthy of years of scientific investigation afterwards to try to figure out what the heck did we, did we see. Because we might have end up, ended up being just exclusively a calibration expedition, which would also be okay. Mm -hmm. How do you... So I know there's some academic journals that this could, these results could potentially um, be published in. One of them you mentioned is, is Limina. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with them, but if you are familiar, it might be helpful to get a little background because my understanding is this is an anomaly or, or perhaps UAP-focused paper, or um, um, not paper, but um, what, what's the right term? Uh, journal. Journal, thank yep. you. Uh, it's, a, it's a UAP or anomaly-based uh, journal. Um, which I think has its pros and cons. Uh, one of the pros is that it's, it, it solidifies its position and starts to coalesce perhaps um, coincident cases or similar cases under a banner that can be looked at from outside in. Yeah. Uh, but the, the con of it also is that it's outside of mainstream academia still uh, and might get looked at differently. Um, how do you think about that, that pro and con when you think about publishing your results for UAPX? That's an excellent question. So this is why actually we're not plan planning on publishing a first paper in Limina. And I can say that because I'm great friends with the chief editor, Mike Sifoni. I've already told him this. And and I he, and already explained no hard feelings. We support him and some of our other some of my colleagues are going to write papers for Limina. But for the first result from UAPX. We all have agreed on UAPX. We need to go to something established. Again, there are pro pros and cons. We will absolutely probably eventually end up with multiple papers in Limina, but it's too new. So the reason why we want to go to something established is because we don't want to hear 
critics, skeptics, debunkers say, oh, that doesn't count. That's in some no-name journal, which, again, to be fair to Mike, he's going to work his way up to try to make it a big, important thing, but he's starting at zero. Mm -hmm. Everyone starts at zero. If you found a new journal, you start at zero. You're not famous. You're not considered rigorous or important, yet everyone starts there. The most important journals in the world had to start somewhere from day zero, you know, even Science and Nature magazine. So the idea is we want to go for something in astronomy and aerospace like the Galileo project has done. I'll be honest, you know, we were a little jealous because we had results already we could have published, you know, and stuff. But the thing is, that's not important. These kinds of com com competitive feelings and professional jealousies, there's no room for this. There's no room for this. So actually, Galileo project being first has a massive advantage for us. So we can we can be be petty and talk about how, well, we have actual results and we, and we tried to publish them first, but we just didn't have time to finish writing the paper, but a more important positive way to look at this is because Galileo Project has already started publishing papers, now it's easier for UAPX. Mm -hmm. So this is a positive because now when UAPX tries to publish, we'll say, hey, hey, you published their paper. Oh, you just published them because they're Harvard and we're, you know, a lower university? That's not fair. That's not ethical. So that's great. Now we can cite the Galileo Project papers as a reference mm -hmm. in our bibliography and say, and, and point to them as paving the way. And so th basically, thanks to someone of Avi Loeb's incredible reputation, he's helping break that ceiling. And now it's, he's, he's made the UAPX's path easier, actually. Um, it's, he's making it easier on his competitors, but that's okay. I hope he feels okay about that. Because before Galileo Project published, man, we would have had probably a hell of a time. But we want what we want to do is we want to aim for similar caliber of journals. I'm not saying necessarily the identical uh, uh, journals, but we want to aim for the same caliber where Galileo Project is publishing because we want to establish UAP by looking at, by starting out by public, trying to publish in journals that are very well established already. Everyone knows they're real. They're not pseudoscientific. They're not woo. They're not crackpot because they've been around for 20, 30 years and are already have a high reputation either in aerospace or astronomy or a similar field mm. like that. So that's our goal. Very cool. Awesome. How else do we move this conversation forward outside of just detection and sensing? You know, are there other areas where we could apply our knowledge and our technology to increase our understanding outside of looking for where something is in the sky? Um, I'm not sure. That's a very open-ended question. <laughs> um, you mean like in terms of like maybe a culture, the cultural sphere? That's one. We could look at it from a cultural sphere. We could look at other avenues of technological exploration outside of you know. Uh, remote sensing um, against the sky, perhaps, or or in space. <laughs> there is a crazy. I can I, I can say one crazy thing. We can we can edit it out <laughs> later if you want. But outside of remote sensing of the sky, you know, you know, one of the obviously the most common hypotheses for UAP is that they're advanced spacecraft and not necessarily human ones. You know, it's, that's such a common hypothesis that we can't avoid it. And I think that's okay to talk about and is getting increasingly socially acceptable. But on that aspect, there are all those, there have been all these claims, you know, of alien abduction. We stay away from that UAPX because we're focused on remote sensing. Nevertheless, I have an opinion on that, which is, because I th I think this is where you go like something other than remote sensing of the sky right this is not yeah, sensing of the sky yeah so I I really it still sensors though and that is 
all these people who claim to have be repeat alien abductees, we, we laugh, but instead of discounting crazy hypotheses as a scientist, I'm like, let's test it. Mm -hmm. I would love to instrument, and people have claimed this has already happened. I haven't seen any scientific publications of this. People claim to be repeat abductees. All right, put a camera in their bedroom. Like, I'm all for getting data, even if the odds are really high that it's probably nonsense. What if it's not? Mm -hmm. So I'm all for testing any, any crazy idea we can think of. Instead of immediately disregarding or discarding it as like, that's impossible, let's apply the scientific method. Let's put it to the test. So it doesn't just have to be remote sensing of the sky or space or sea. There are other aspects that are you could say traditionally associated with this phenomenon that sounds so crazy, so improbable of being true, but nevertheless, we can still test those ideas. So even though I'm skeptical of the like less nut, nuts and bolts kinds of things, don't, these are still things we can test with nuts and bolts. We can, another example is people who claim to have had crazy things happen to them. We've got, lie, we've got lie detector tests that are nearly impossible, nearly impossible to break. They've tested them on Mythbusters. It's really hard <laughs> to cheat some of the lie detector technologies we have available these days. So th the, that's another aspect. People claim to have seen something crazy that they can't explain, UFO, or they, they've, they claim they've seen some sort of a being. I really think, and this has been done already, of course, to multiple uh, witnesses. But I think we, we, I think that we should make more use, um, as, as long as you know people are are, are okay with it. Uh, witnesses, more use of technologies we have, like like the polygraph and other forms of, of of lie and deception detection, because they're actually really good. Mm -hmm. They're more than you know ninety nine point something percent effect. They're not. It's not a coin toss. It's not like it's fifty fifty. Yeah. So we've got we've got technologies where even so, this is very different than remote sensing. Even if we focus on, on witnesses, there are ways to determine with a very high level of scientific certainty whether people at least, it doesn't prove they saw what they saw, but at least test whether they believe what they're saying. And that helps eliminate people who are just in UAPs trying to get famous versus people who have actually uh, witnessed something they can't explain. So there are a lot of different ways we can tackle, tackle this problem. Mm-hmm. Have you experienced any stigma related to your interest in this topic, professionally or personally? I, I have, but I'm very lucky because I think the stigma is greatly reduced. It's not gone, but it's greatly reduced. And it's reduced because of the um, first excellent journalistic work. We've got people like um, Leslie Keene. You know, we had the, the, the famous New York Times article. We have um, Lou Elizondo coming out and talking about these things. And... The, these incidents reduce the stigma but don't eliminate it completely. So I've definitely had um, uh, family members uh, laugh. Most are supportive, don't get me wrong, but there will be a giggle or um, from, from colleagues in my uh, department as well. Much worse for, for my, I'm sure, for my friend Kevin uh, Knuth who's been doing this uh, for longer than I have. But there's definitely still stigma. But that being said, I still consider myself lucky because I feel like decades ago, 
was much worse. I'm sure it was much, much worse for people like uh, J. Allen Hynek, for example, probably had um, a heck of a time at their home institution, home department. So I consider myself lucky that I have mostly supportive colleagues and supportive family. The The giggle factor is has become the exception where it used to be the rule. And it used to be that the exception was that, that it would be okay. Interesting. Um, is this something you've engaged with your students at all? I have, and my students are are um, way open-minded than any people um, of my age or older. And I think that's great because that gives me hope for the future. And, and so I have very, it's very rare that I would have, that I would encounter a student who's not immediately uh, fascinated by the topic. Very rarely are students as, um, as, uh, as, as uh, a skeptical as, uh, as, as scientists in general, or as, as, uh, you know, I was, I was about to say adults in general, but college students are adults, but you know what I yeah. mean? You know, people who have established careers. Do you, think versus... do you think that's our natural state and something happens as we go through the process and we end up at a degraded state? Or is, is that a, a, a sense of silliness or risk that they're taking that they'll grow out of for the better? Do you think? Well, I, I don't think growing out of it for the better is a good thing because even if even if let's say I don't think this is the case, but let's say all of UAP, it's all nonsense. I don't think that's the case. It's your experience, this experience of of Gary Varese and Kevin Day and so many others. But let's for the sake of argument say it's all nonsense and people should grow out of it for the better. No, because I think that it can fire the imagination in the same way that fiction does. So for example, let's say either UAP does nothing interesting or let's say it is interesting, but let's say it's a natural phenomenon um, and there are no alien spacecraft, for example. That doesn't matter because this is how I, I've often concluded talks I've given um, uh, with, with Kevin on our UAPX preliminary results is on our concluding slide we say, look, even if this is all nonsense, we want to inspire the next generation of scientists and engineers even coming up um, underneath us, underneath uh, me too, because what if there's no – what if um, there are no alien wormholes or warp drives, things like that, but – what if by trying to find aliens doing these things, wormholes, warp drives, what if we inspire human scientists and engineers to create those technologies? And so it's still a worthwhile endeavor. But I think you asked, is it people, something people grow out of? I think that's part of it. But I think there's another part, which is there is a natural progression also of humanity from generation to generation, where each generation is... Um, open to more things you can see this it's not just science you can see this you know in religion in morals and ethics things that used to be you know we wouldn't talk about them decades ago are now accepted parts of our society you can see this with um lgbtq and advancements on, on that front where you know we didn't talk about it you know year decades ago and then the sort of the sphere of human rights keeps expanding i think that the same thing sort of happens in science so it's not just you know kids are curious and then they end up you know becoming you know heart you know then they get their job and then they lose the magic of childhood that's part of it but i think another part uh, an opposite force of that is every generation become slightly more open-minded. At least I hope so. And that 
gives me hope for the future of humanity. It's not a perfect process. I'm not saying that it's a linear process. I'm not claiming that. I'm sure there are some cases where we take we take three steps forward, two steps back, things like that. But I think as a general process, each younger generation on average, again, you can always find outliers, but I think that on average, we're becoming slowly more open-minded. And I think that's what I'm seeing in my classrooms. Mm -hmm. So it's... It's encouraging for me to hear you say that about the younger generation, but academia, of course, is ruled by an, an older class mm-hmm. um, of uh, professors and whatnot. So I have seen a somewhat unique—I I support everything you just said about the younger generation being more open to this. Um, I have seen a cohort of, um, of, of older um, people who are engaging this, and they're engaging it from a— manner of this was something I was interested in when I was a kid. This is something that was presented to me in a different light, and then it went away. And it went away in the public's fear to a certain degree, but it didn't necessarily go away for them. Um, they continued on, and now they see this as potentially an opportunity to reinvigorate that interest and that uh, potential that they, they saw when they were younger. So I have seen a bit of that cohort, but to the larger point, academia uh, it does uh, does have uh, age at the top. So how do we get academia to be more open to these ideas and to uh, integrate into into what is slightly a gatekeeping type situation where UAP is considered essentially a, a low class study, if you will, mm-hmm. um, by the people at these institutions? How do we bridge that gap? The younger generation is interested in it. Certain professionals are getting interested in it that have done the background on it. How do we bring that to the wider cohort? I think there's several ways to do that. One is um, that there needs to be funding mechanisms. So it sounds very cynical, but if a young prof- if a professor is bringing money to study UAP, their colleagues will laugh, but the university administration will not laugh if they're bringing in cash. So I know it's a terrible, cynical thing to say, but it is true that if there was a mechanism. So in my research into dark matter, for example. I, uh, my colleague, Professor uh, Cecilia Levy and I, we have, mil- we have like a million dollar plus grant. So, you know, you know who's going to, no one's going to laugh at that. And so the same thing, if there would, if there's money in UAP study, but the problem is then, as you said, you have to convince um, an, an older, maybe more like scientifically conservative community that it's worth spending money on because then the criticism is, oh, it's a waste of time because it's nonsense. Why are we going to spend money on it? It's a zero sum game. Yeah, yeah, there is finite resources. So if you spend money on that, then that must mean some other scientific endeavor is not going to get money. And then you say, why are we wasting money on this pseudoscientific thing of UFOs when there's real science to be done? So that's why I'm saying that's only part of the answer because funding, that's not just going to magically happen. We, As you said, it's a zero-sum game. We have finite resources. We're barely, we don't have enough money in this country or anywhere in the world to do all of the mainstream science topics we have to do. Dark matter is, is underfunded. Everything's underfunded. And so it's a hard case to make. So other things that have to happen is, um, is people, um, I, I've said this on multiple podcasts already, older, more conservative generation just needs to retire 
or die or both. <laughs> it's just part of the natural progression. I said is then younger people who are more open-minded take over faculty positions and become editors of journals. And, and a third aspect of how to address this, which none of the things I'm suggesting are all, are going to fix it entirely because that's thing. a tough question. Yeah, it's a tough problem to solve. But one more, one last idea I have on what could help is um, – is, is maintaining of academic freedom because you pointed out um, how things can can end up um, you end up being stuck you know in your in your sort of track of scientific dogma and sort of stuck in a rut academic freedom is very important and where that comes from is tenure basically the inability to not get the inability to get fired because then you can work on whatever you want and there are many states in the country that are starting to try to like um, repeal or remove that and i think that's extremely dangerous because it's one of the bedrocks of a free society is that the in the in academia um and what most people don't realize is that the protections of academic freedom go all directions for example a, a, um, a liberal professor can stay in the closet at a conservative school a conservative professor can stay in the conservative closet until they get tenure at a liberal school and be like ha ha i'm conservative too late you can't fire me so like it's tenure is crucial and it's under attack in many different in many different places and basically there are a lot of critics like oh and if you can't get fired, you'll be lazy. Now do your job. Of course, there are downsides, but there's massive upsides. Like I can go work on UAPs and I can't get fired. That's enormous. And if that continues, that's going to help. Because as long as, as, the, as the tenure system continues, then that's going to help because it means that professors, once they can't get fired anymore, can go work on UAP. And, you know, they still have to teach their classes and the other aspects of their job, but at least don't, they don't need to worry about getting fired. And I think that's really going to help drive things like UAP research forward. And that's already happening, as I said, but there's this – there's a lot of um, – criticism against the the tenure system academia right now but i think it it's goods out the good of it outweighs the bad mm -hmm. we're looking for something that's anomalous in the sky and i think we understand that there's a few buckets that that could fall into and we're not necessarily at a point where we can draw a conclusion about what they are um, but of course there um there's hypothesis and there's some popular culture talk about aliens and things of that nature you know where are we um it sounds crazy to think about spaceships in our sky, um, but if we, you know, forget about our local uh, neighborhood here and we kind of look far out into the universe, where are we on our understanding of, of life in the universe? Um, have we updated the Drake equation at all lately? Um, what, what's, what's, what's your thoughts on, on whether intelligent life is feasible elsewhere in the universe? So yeah, I'm I'm 100% not 99. Point something. I'm 100% convinced we're not alone. And in fact, I think the claim that we are alone, which is a valid claim to make, I think that's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary hypothesis, and it requires extraordinary evidence. And all the evidence points the other direction. So that's why I I think that um, I think that, that what evidence the, points in the other direction? Oh, so the. The discoveries over the last few decades of exoplanets, planets outside of our star system. When you and I watched Star Trek Next Generation, um, well, it, was, it was a seven-year show. Over the course of that show, most of the, during most of Star Trek, you know how many other planets we knew about outside our system? 
zero. And then it became one. One in the 90s. Or I think in the 80s, there might have been like a preliminary result in the 80s. But in, in the 90s is when we finally, we conclusively found a planet outside of our system. You know how many we know of now? Several thousand. And that's only in a tiny patch of the sky. You extrapolate that to the entire Milky Way. It's probably trillions of planets in our Milky Way. And as far as we know, statistically, something like 20%. So you were asking about updates to the Drake Equation. Drake Equation started out as just um, wild guesses. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not criticizing. Could you, you maybe know, start Drake. at the beginning of, of that equation? I just lightly sure. explain what it is. Yeah, so the, the idea, yeah, for your listeners, right, the Drake Equation is an attempt to estimate the number of intelligent civilizations based on certain factors. Off the top of my head, I'm not going to remember all of them. There's probably like, there's more than half a dozen, but it's things like, you know, how many planets are there around stars? How often do they evolve intelligent life? Things like that. And when Drake first came up with his equation, he was an astronomer, actually I said was, I, I don't remember if he, he passed away recently or not, but, uh, but if he's still alive, he's probably very old. Um, initially, and this is not a criticism, you know, we didn't have computers and things like that yet, all the numbers were just wild guesses. Most of the numbers of Drake Occasion were wild guesses. This is not the case anymore. There's still, don't get me wrong, massive uncertainties. People can still argue, but some of those numbers... Well, we're starting to add data. Yeah, exactly. We've got real data with telescopes. And so one of those things that, one of those factors in the Drake Equation that's no longer a wild guess are the number of planets and the number of potentially habitable planets. And remarkably, this makes me really excited. Even Star Trek wasn't optimistic enough. I used to laugh, like, not just Star Trek Next Generation, but then um, Star Trek Voyager, they're stuck in the Delta Quadrant, and they're like, there's a planet every episode, and it's always M-class, right, as they call it in Star Trek. They can always land. They don't never need spacesuits. Turns out Star Trek wasn't optimistic enough. There are so many planets that we think probably most stars have planets around so instead of planets being the exception, it turns out they're the rule. There are planets everywhere. And that doesn't count moons, asteroids, other bodies. Not only are there planets everywhere, we grossly underestimated decades ago, when we're still arguing about this without data, we've grossly underestimated the number of habitable planets. Basically planets that are in the so-called Goldilocks zone in astronomy. Not too hot, not too cold, where there's probably liquid water, oxygen, but that's only life as we know it, right? And so if you count life not as we know it, what if life doesn't need water and oxygen, right? Then there could be billions, if not trillions, of worlds. So a separate question, though, and this is the more difficult one, is if there's intelligent life, can it get here? And that one is still hotly debated, even though I've tried to, I wrote um, uh, a Medium essay for UAPX about this. Like, I, I think... It's pretty clear to me interstellar travel is possible, but then people immediately start attacking that, no, it's too hard, the distances are too great. And so I think that the probability of intelligent life is nearly 100%. But can, it, can intelligent life travel to other systems? That is a much trickier question. I'm of the opinion that it's that it's easy, but sci but uh, but sci a scientist can look me in the eye in good faith and say I'm wrong, and then it's very hard. And there's room there for debate and discussion. But for the probability of 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 life, including intelligent life, I think that's very close to 100 percent, given the discoveries of the past few decades. Thirty years ago, 
we'd be having a different conversation because we had found only one <laughs> one planet outside of our solar system. So I, I don't I hesitate to speak for everyone, but uh, generally, I think the the spirit is relatively festive and excited about the discovery of these exoplanets. Um, there's no sensing, no sense of dread or anything of that yeah. nature, right? Yeah. Um, so that's well, exciting and great. Well, there's some dread. Stephen Hawking, before he passed away, and I think Neil deGrasse Tyson said this as well, they're worried some advanced civilization's going to invade us and kill us all. So some scientists have se- have a sense of dread. Um, I don't. I'm optimistic. So I join you with that, mm-hmm. with that, that, that mood. Well, yeah. even generally speaking, I think if I went to a person in the street, they would think discovering that is a cool and good thing. And but when we talk about potentially zooming into where we are here and saying there might be things closer, um, that suddenly starts changing the conversation a bit and making it less palatable. It suddenly becomes yes. fantasy. It suddenly yes. becomes uh, something that um, you respond to with laughter. Yes. Um, and you you distance yourself from that person almost uh, psychologically. Yes. Um, what's the difference? The difference is is the second half. Of, of what I said, because it's still controversial whether life can travel the universe easily. And that's not just in the scientific community. Like you said, it's everywhere in the public. So there's two separate things there. Does life exist? And then there's a sub-question there. Intelligent life, you know, versus plants, you know, non-intelligent animals, things like that. Versus can it get here? These are very separate because... It's almost like, and this is not just scientists, like the public, you said, it's cool, oh, they're aliens, oh, they're over there. That's fine. Oh, they're so far away, they'll never get here. That, that, that's, that's okay. But if they're here, suddenly what happens is our ontological security is threatened. That's what Alexander, Professor Alexander Wendt calls it. He's talked about you know UAPs, and he's asked the tough question, could some of them actually be non-human craft? He's actually asked that tough question. And he says that this threatens our ontological security. So what that means is humanity is no longer top dog. And that scares the hell out of us when it shouldn't. Scientists of all people should know history shows we're never top dog. This is called the, you know, the Copernican principle. We found out we're not at the center of the universe. And we seem to learn that over and over again. And that used to be a religious thing, but now it's a scientific thing. Now scientists are afraid of not being top dog. Now it's no longer, you know, the priests and bishops who are like, oh, you can't, you know, now, you know, they're telling us humans, you know, humans are sinners. Meanwhile, scientists are like, oh, humans are awesome. We're the best. We figure, we're going to figure everything out. When I think that's bad, that's like a, that's what, religious dogma used to do and still does in some cases, but now it's the scientists who are afraid of not being top dog. So I think that's the answer to your question. We are so afraid that if there's something else, a non-human intelligent species, we are not ready to no longer be the pinnacle of, if you're religious, pinnacle of creation or pinnacle of evolution. We're afraid. And I personally embrace that. I would love to meet aliens that are smarter than humans. Think of what we could learn. I don't have any problem with meeting non-human entities. I think it's, I think it's great that, um, that humans wouldn't be top dog. Do you think that there's an analogy between the emotions felt, the fear felt about the potential for AI as the emotions that are felt for the potential of extraterrestrials? I think they're very similar with one major difference. With extraterrestrials, it's worse because we feel we can't control it. With AI, 
yes, there are people who say we can't control it, but there's a huge difference. We're making the AI, right? We're, we're still writing the code. Like we still don't have self-replicating robots. And so it's a similar fear, but I think the extraterrestrial one's even worse because it's something completely outside of human control. For AI, we feel like, oh, we'll pass some laws and everything will be fine again. Not saying that's the case, but I'm saying that's how some people feel. Oh, we'll just pass a few laws and it'll be fine. Whether we can or we can't doesn't matter. We believe we can. Yeah, exactly. So we exactly. Whereas with extraterrestrials, we know that's not going to happen. You're not going to pass some law against extraterrestrials if we're, they're here, they're here. If they have better tech than us, there is nothing we can do about it. Whereas with AI, we can at least give ourselves a comforting lie that oh it'll be fine AI will be fine but with extraterrestrials you, we, we can't even run away to that comfort mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're asking people to process a lot of potential information um, as far as their you know their ontological mm -hmm. understanding what if we were to flip this, the script a little bit for you instead of us potentially and I don't know how we do it, and that does, is irrelevant, but instead of you searching for incontrovertible proof of something anomalous that has high has a potential to be extraterrestrial, what if you were looking and you found incontrovertible pr proof that there were no ET whatsoever? How would you, how would you attempt to integrate that? That's a good question, but I'm not, I don't know how that's possible because you could always say, oh, there's some more distant I, galaxy. Yeah, don't worry about if it's possible or yeah. not, but it's just as a thought exercise because it, it's that type of shift in mindset that we're potentially asking other people to go through. That. Yeah. So I don't know. Is there anything to be gained by going through that thought exercise? I mean, yeah, it's, that, it's, it's a possibility. Even though I said earlier, I think it's a, almost 100% that there's life out there. There is. I don't think it's possible. But one could say, what, let's say, let's, because you said, let's not worry about how that would happen. So let's hypothetically speaking say it turns out the probability of life forming is so astronomically small. Again, that's not what biology currently says. That's what we used to think years ago, but we have the opposite. But let's say we're wrong, and it turns out what we thought 50 years ago was correct, and life is very, very rare, and let's say, Turns out we are alone. Again, so improbable, big universe. And then how would you prove that? But putting that aside, I think um, you're saying how would I react or how would people who I think guess, they're... I wonder, you know, would you try to, uh, you know, address that through solutions of science or would you address that through solutions of perhaps religion or something external to, you know, a quantitative understanding of the universe? Yeah, I'm not sure what science could do with that, right? It changes things if then humans are the only ones around that would definitely um it would definitely that's a i it's a that's a lot of empty space um i think it's just um it, for most people that would be more comforting though because we don't want to think about as you said about other other intelligent life forms personally i would be I, it wouldn't be a big paradigm shift for for me it would just be disappointing and so the, the but disappointment in something that isn't real that's not something science deals with right that's more of a yeah that's more um philosophy as you said philosophy religion ethics things like that so much of science is based around you know the median uh we're not special necessarily um exactly that's the copernican principle certainly yeah. and this this would flip that script uh, on its head and that's why i wonder you know if we can use this exercise as a way of perhaps understanding how 
people that already interpret their place in, in a potentially empty universe, what they would turn to. So can we make you know, scientific arguments to someone that's highly religious that thinks the universe is empty? Is that going to change their mind? No. And I don't think we necessarily have the answers to these, but I think these are some of the questions oh. that socio sociologists and other you know professionals that can start to engage and, and better understand once we have you know more broad buy-in from the academic community. I think yeah, it's really hard because you know we don't have you know TV show TV show news programs everyone watches together. Everyone goes and finds their echo chamber, and so it's really hard to convince anyone of anything these days. Because if you're liberal, you watch the liberal stuff. If you're conservative, you watch the conservative stuff, and you ignore all the other data, and that's really really bad. And so I think it would be really hard to convince um, people in either direction of you've you've been you know for sure you know from your religion that the universe is empty and humans are all there is or the opposite and how do you switch and that's very very challenging um the way i would approach it but this is only me other people i know other scientists who just give up but but me I wouldn't have a problem talking to people. For example, if 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 someone is deeply uh, concerned because they thought huma humanity are our top is our top dog from a religious perspective, I'd say, hey, you know, didn't Jesus say be humble like me? So it's all about humility. So that's why there are more advanced aliens to teach you more humility. There there are ways there are ways to discuss this in in different contexts from religious and ethical contexts but i'm not saying it's not going to be a very very difficult challenge um but i do think you're trying to make an analogy but i don't think it's symmetric i think it's easier for everybody including science to just accept humanities alone that's fine for i think literally everybody to accept but the other direction just is just so much more so much more difficult for 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 many people and i think the reason why is because well that's all the evidence we have so far as humanities alone where so the other the other um direction is is a radical shift because even though we have all this evidence of exoplanets like i said earlier that's not well known by everybody you said people man on the streets excited by these discoveries most people are, don't know there are eight thousand exoplanets we've discovered people are still arguing about whether Pluto's a planet people are still trying to memorize the names of the eight or nine planets our system nobody learns in school like not in sixth seventh grade or high school nobody learns that there are thousands of exoplanets nobody learns that we still learn about Mercury Venus Earth Mars, blah 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 you know like nobody is learning about these exoplanet discoveries um, so they're in the popular press and the media but they're not covered in the middle school, high school science textbooks, as far as I know, I'm sure that varies from state to state. So I'm speaking in generalities. So I know some listener will say, oh yeah, my kid is learning, but not all school districts are equal. We know this. Education is different, different states, different cities. And from my understanding, from what I, I've seen, people aren't, are not learning about these discoveries. And so going back to your point, about changing people's minds who have things one way. You can't do that if people aren't even getting the basic facts and data from a young age. Hmm. So education, you think, would be key in yeah. helping people be better informed about the... Yeah, people aren't really informed about recent discoveries like exoplanets and astronomy. And so I think people are, are ready to accept that humanity may be entirely alone, but we're not ready to accept... Um, the presence of physical non-human intelligence. 
But, you know, from a religious perspective, there are, you know, people believe in angels and demons that are better than humans, mm-hmm. stronger, mm-hmm. right? So, and more intelligent. And so maybe, you know, we, that maybe we are underselling ourselves and maybe if aliens are real, maybe humanity is ready to accept that. And maybe we're, we're too, we are, we are wrong, and all the and the philosophers and and, and uh, people like Alexander went. What if they're wrong? And humanity will be like, okay, that's cool. I mean, uh, or there'll be mass panic and blah blah blah. I'm not I'm not convinced there'd be mass panic. Um, again, aliens are only one hypothesis for UAPs. They're one of my favorite for obvious reasons. You know, the anomalous velocities and accelerations. They're consistent with with craft, with spacecraft, with good spacecraft. My my colleague, Professor Kevin Knuth, has a published paper saying that. You know, there are very few publications, as we were talking about earlier, on UAP in real journals. But there is there is evidence, not proof, but there is good evidence that suggests we should con- we should take the ET hypothesis seriously. We shouldn't laugh it off. Mm-hmm. Do you have any questions for me? Perhaps that um, you know you've been wanting to ask. Yeah, I I do. Why can't why can't we just see some footage of this? I want to see the fo- I want to have some footage of of what you saw and not just footage because everyone can say oh that was faked. I want to see FLIR and regular camera visible light and I want to see radar data. I want to see the data because I think one of the issues we currently have about UAP research the best data is classified. And that's a serious problem because if I'm a scientist and I tell my scientist colleague, hey, you know, there was this thing that was going 10,000 miles per hour without a sonic boom. Really? Prove it. Oh, I can't. The data is classified. Okay, well, then I'm, you're, you're, I'm not listening to you anymore. This is a joke. But then how am I going to doubt, you know, people like you, like, you know, our men and women in uniform who've experienced these things, and we're going to say, oh, we can't trust eyewitnesses. They're all crazy. They don't have the data. The, the hard data should come out. And I've heard all the counter arguments. Oh, we don't want Russia and China to know what American censors do. Oh, come on. There are <laughs> ways around this. What you, you, can, you can remove um, some, some of the, the metadata. Again, not ideal. Scientists will say it's still not good enough. But at least there's got to be some kind of compromise where you can remove some of the information on, I don't know, you know, the Spy 1 Bravo radar Aegis system, things like that. Remove some of the key information so it can't be duplicated by our adversaries, but give out at least enough information where scientists can start can start studying. Because I feel like we are on an uphill battle. We've got UAPX, Galileo Project, and maybe we're going to get some hard evidence. But it's really annoying when you stop and think for a second and say, wait a second. The government's got way better evidence than maybe we'll ever had with, with like billion-dollar sensors. Can we see that? <laughs> you know, I, I feel like progress is not going to be made unless science is open. So I've heard, you know, they've got oh, they've got scientists that're working on secret programs. That's not going to solve. That's not going to solve it. Um, a good analogy is the Manhattan Project. That was a secret project. How many scientists? You had hundreds. You're not going to solve UAP with like the five, ten scientists, even if they're the most brilliant people. You're going to need hundreds of scientists. You're going to need a Manhattan Project style thing, you know, like for to figure out what UAP are. And in order for that to happen, sort of a chicken and egg problem. You want people to take it seriously enough to say that it's worth a. Is worth spending money on. Yeah. Well, let me try to answer your question. Um, so you've seen the the, the AT flare footage. Yeah. Uh, that that was released because it 
not our best sensor, right? So exactly. I think to the point, the point you made is our best sensors are classified. I think that's probably always going to be the case, right? Uh, if we're receiving it, it's probably because it's not the best information they have. Yep. I think that I think we could probably expect that to continue. But I think there are mechanisms through you know statistical distribution and other methods that you can use to. Um, remove the classified portions of the data if they're well defined exactly to bring out something into hopefully the civil world to be able to do or attack it with more minds just like you said because i agree that i think that's is the way to do it um and i think that i think there are ways that that can be accomplished i think um the all domain anomaly resolution office that's uh working uh, on this problem now has that um has that mandate but i think it's uh something that they are in the process of standing up. Um, I think they're really, they're underfunded and undermanned. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a serious issue, and it's still not taken seriously enough. We have congressional hearings. We have the AARO. But I think they they don't have the money and the resources they need to really tackle the problem. I can't feel like, I, I have to suggest that they are feeling the seriousness of the issue now, especially with the the balloon incidents, the you know, the demonstration of a, a domain awareness gap on yeah. the national stage. I have to assume it's being taken serious now. So I guess the other the question is why are there still all these problems? What is the holdup? Well, the holdup is so then you gave a great example with the balloons. You have the Wall Street Journal saying that the UFO bubble has popped and saying it's all balloons, so it's all nonsense. Which you and I know is absurd. Balloons don't move at thousands of miles an hour against the wind, accelerated hundreds of G. It's absurd just because some anomalies ended up being tiny spy balloons doesn't mean all the anomalies are spy balloons. You're not going to explain Nimitz. You're not going to explain West Coast, East Coast, what you experienced. You're not going to explain the Roosevelt incident. You can't explain those all as balloons or drones for that matter. And so every time... We take three steps forward. We take several steps back. You get journalists who publish hit pieces. Um, for example, there were there were hit pieces uh, published against the um, uh, Galileo project. That's stupid and waste of money. I can tell you, Avi was not happy with that. Um, UAPX, we haven't had that much because we're broke. But once if we start publishing papers and stuff, I'm sure there'll be we'll have our own hit pieces about how this is dumb and a waste of time and money. And so those kinds of things. Those demoralize people, you know, and 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 it's not just UAPs. Imagine you're working on some exotic propulsion for NASA or for some private aerospace company, and and someone publishes something that says, "Oh, that's stupid. That'll never work." I mean, there's historical precedent for this. Air travel. There were great. There were not just journalists. Scientists said faster than that. They said that heavier than air flying machines. Never, never will never happen. One, one, one person once wrote, I think it was a New York Times editorial, actually, it's like a century, more than a century ago, where they wrote, not only is our airplanes impossible, they'll be impossible in a thousand years, and they'll still be impossible in a million years. So what are you supposed to do when you're up against that, right? So, and with UAP, so it's a really tough, that's a, it's a really tough mountain to climb because you, you still have people laughing and laughing at you, not with you, not with you, at you about, about this, this, this whole endeavor. And, you know, ooh, little green men and start making fun of you. Um, when, again, like we said earlier, even though aliens are a valid hypothesis, they're not the only one. There could be some weird, I don't know, plasma, atmospheric phenomenon that we don't know about. That's still worth studying. That's still worth figuring out. Just because it may not be aliens doesn't mean it's not worth studying. We need to figure out what it is. 
Well, Matt, I appreciate you making that climb up the mountain. Uh, with me, I'll, I'll suggest, uh, and I think there are a growing number of people that are, are willing to climb up that mountain. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of shades uh, of gray with the stigma around this topic. Uh, there's, a, there's a wall of stigma. If you're on one side of it, you're, you're completely and fully bought in on that side. And if you've, put your, if you've integrated yourself enough to be on the other side of that stigma wall, then you're pretty much fully bought in on that side as well. Um, so thank you for the efforts that you're doing. Um, I think they're extremely valuable. Thank you for, um, applying your, your, your physics, uh, experience to this other mystery that we have in front of us in the universe. Well, thank you for having me.